Welcome to the Med Device Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Fran Moriarty. Med Device Careers is building a community shaping the future of healthcare. Each episode, I'll sit down with leaders and innovators in the med device space to discuss their career path, explore their contributions, and share their advice. Join us today at meddevicecareers.com to grow your knowledge, network, and career. In this episode, I speak with Lisa Earnhardt, Executive Vice President at Abbott. Lisa received a degree from Stanford in Industrial Engineering and an MBA from Kellogg and has spent over 25 years working for companies such as Guidant, Intersect, ENT, and Abbott. In our conversation, we discuss how her engineering background informs her commercial and managerial experience, scaling an organization from Series A to IPO, and expanding the reach of the practical. Please enjoy. Well, Lisa, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I, there's a lot that I, I really want to talk to you about today, but you know, I'd love to understand sort of what your motivation was be- behind entering you know the medical device space. Uh, I understand you were an engineering major at Stanford, so walk me through what your f- sort of first initial exposure was and what drew you to the space. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to have an opportunity to chat. You're right. So I was an engineer undergraduate. Out of school, I went into healthcare management consulting and loved being in healthcare, loved what I call like the psychological income of like making a difference. You know, at the time decided like, okay, I'm going to go back to business school. I actually, as an engineer, wanted to be in technology. And so I actually interned at Dell Computer, which at the time was a little bit of a startup. It's changed since then. But then as I was thinking about what I wanted to do full time, I was like, gosh, you know, the med tech world is sort of an opportunity for me to combine my love of healthcare and technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because at the end of the day, in just tech alone, I just didn't feel that same impact you know it just felt different than than kind of the impact you have in healthcare and so medtech is like the perfect marriage for me of both healthcare and technology so i started my career at guidant um, up in the uh, twin cities uh, which is now part of boston scientific we can talk more about that but i started with the cardiac rhythm management group at guidant you, as you mentioned you know when we were just speaking earlier you started off in a, in a clinical role and sort of moved up in that respect so as an engineer moving over to you know, there's the clinical side, but then also sort of the, the commercial side. So, you know, the, the, the sales and management. How did your engineering background sort of inform your, your managerial and your, your commercial uh, you know, responsibilities? Yeah, I think about engineering is just problem solving. And as you think about sales, it's really solving customer problems. So for me, it was just a matter of like really understanding what the, what the needs were, what the problems were, and figuring out how to solve them. And so that could be through our products, it could be through our service, which obviously is a big component in particular in the cardiac rhythm management world. It could be in terms of how we engage the customers, it's pricing, it's all different kinds of things. And so that was how I sort of made that transition more from that like engineering background and really applying that into the commercial world and then ultimately, you know, in the management and leadership ranks. That's interesting. That sort of background is really you know, providing a particularly unique insight into not just sort of operationally how things work, but being able to bring that problem solving and the clinical component to it. As you grew in Guidant and in Boston Scientific, where did you find your sort of your, your, your place or what was it that drew you to one versus the other? I'd be kind of curious to hear about that. Yeah, you're right, Fran. I split my time really between sales and marketing. Coming out of business school, I actually thought like I didn't want to do sales. I didn't, you know, really understand. I'm like, I didn't go to get a 
you know, advanced degree to be a sales rep, right? And it's amazing though, when I, when I got that experience, I realized how important it is, especially in the med tech field, to really understand the customer and to, to walk in their shoes. And just recognizing the role we play as industry is so very different than selling, let's say, Xerox copiers or any other uh, kind of product. And so it was really formative for me. And I just, I found I really gravitated to interacting with customers. I gravitated to thinking about, okay, what more could we do? What could we be doing differently from a technology standpoint, from the organizational standpoint? So just loved it. I would say, you know, commercialization generally is kind of my home, if yeah. you will, in terms of where I've made my career, having had lots of different opportunities at Guyton and then and then Boston. And that really, I think, prepared me to lead an organization just because, once again, in med tech, like, nothing happens if you don't, if you don't really understand what your customer needs are. Yeah, and I'd love to sort of, you know, drill down on that a little bit. So, you know, you rose in the ranks, developed your career with Guyton, and then ultimately with the acquisition with, with Boston Scientific. And then you 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 left to, to work at Intersect ENT, right? And so, were you one of the first eight employees? Is that right? Or? I was at so I went to Boston Scientific as part of the Guidance acquisition. Yep. At the time, I had made the move from cardiac rhythm management to cardiac surgery, and I was running the cardiac surgery business. And we had spent quite a bit of time on. Um, integrating into Boston and and actually before that you you may recall we were actually um, for about a year back and forth thinking we were going to be part of Johnson and Johnson mm-hmm. and that that merger did not pan out so I had just spent so much time on the integration planning and all of that I'm like I just want to build something and so made the move into the startup world I was I, I'm trying to think I was maybe like the 12th employee at Intersect and it was an interesting time because they had a product and all I knew, this is, so I had made the move from cardiology and intersect is ENT, mm-hmm. ear, nose and throat. So we had a drug eluting stent for patients with chronic sinus disease. And all I knew at the time was it had been implanted in patients, it didn't hurt and it didn't fall out, which is a pretty low bar. So I didn't know like, could we make it? Does it work? Um, would anyone buy it? You know, there was a few different, um, different challenges ahead. So it was really early stage, right. but it was really fun for me because I just come from like big corporate America, if you will. So it was fun to be in the in the startup world, especially since I live out here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And there's just a lot of innovative companies and there's a lot of venture capitalists and it's, it's really a bit of an ecosystem here. And so it was fun to sort of make that leap. Yeah. You know, that opportunity to go in and to, you know, to your point, really build something you know, you're wearing multiple hats, I would imagine. What was for you the experience of scaling that organization, right? Because, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, you, you, you rose into a leadership position, you know, as, as CEO and even thinking like, you know, like Series A to, you know, IPO or, or you know, what, what were some of the like key lessons that you learned, you know, scaling and growing that, that organization? And then also if there was anything, you know, that you took from your, experience at Boston or, or guidance um, that informed sort of how you went about doing it? Yeah, so I think it starts first with the people, especially in a small organization like a startup, like every single person matters. And it's not that that isn't the case in a large company, but you know, when I started, you know, even up to, you know, the first 100 employees, like I interviewed everyone because they were, each individual contributed a lot to the company culture, right? And sort of what we stood for. And each person, you know, had to wear a lot of different hats. Mm-hmm. And so that people side was so critical throughout. So that was an important part of the scaling. And then one of the differences I would contrast 
the, in the startup world versus the corporate world is your sort of your the need to sort of make decisions without complete information, mm-hmm. and you really you don't you don't have the time or the money quite honestly uh, to, to to have the luxury of really kind of really deeply understanding, and the goal is really like make an informed decision, fail fast, and and move right. forward. And it's just a different kind of mindset. An additional point as well is in the startup world, you just can't do you can't do a lot of things in parallel. You really have to focus and focus mm-hmm. on like one thing and do it very well, and then you kind of earn the right to do the next right. thing. And so, which is very different, like preparing for a product launch. As we grew in the organization and we got closer to launch, in the corporate world, I had launched you know dozens of products before, and you can make investments knowing you know that you don't that you don't even have approval yet but because you know you're going to get approval it's mm-hmm. just a timing thing well in the startup world i remember distinctly like i didn't even hire a head of sales until after we had gotten approval right right and so completely different you yeah. would all you'd be doing so much more preparation for a launch a big company but you just can't even afford to do that because what if the regulatory process takes another three months or six months or there's a delay and you need to do additional clinical work well that's you know that drives your burn rate right. and 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 therefore you you would then need to you know downsize the organization right and so it's just very different how you approach sort of every step of of building the business so yeah it's, it's not it's not that it's better it's just different, different. right that's that's a really interesting point because you're taking steps to de-risk, right? Every single sort of iteration or, or step in the, in the process. And so you sort of hit one milestone and then it's onto the next one and then onto the next one. But it's, to your point, working with sort of incomplete information, you know, a little bit challenging at times, but also I think it really makes you think in ways where you're, you know, you're leveraging different thought processes or, you know, pulling from different experiences because you know, you're, you're not siloed sort of in your... In yeah, your like everyone world. is on the team, right? right? Like, and we were so small that like, if there was an issue, it'd be like, hey guys, let's get like, you know, stand up, let's let's chit chat about, you know, this issue we have and what are we going to do about it? So it's like literally like real-time problem solving. It's not like, hey, let's set up a meeting, let's develop a PowerPoint, let's go off and do some research. It's like sort of almost real-time right. that you're... Because once again, time is money in the startup world and cash is king and you just can't you you know you just can't afford not to act as you know as quickly as possible on issues you start there you grow you know what does that sort of exit event look like for you at, at the end of ENT yeah so we you know raised multiple rounds of financing and decided gosh I'm trying to think it was probably late 2013 all of a sudden there had been two medtech IPOs and that was after several years of you know, maybe one each year. So it was definitely a dry, dry spot. And we were at a point at Intersect where we thought, gosh, we could, you know, we really have an opportunity to to build and really mm-hmm. go from being a one product company to multiple, you know, from a sort of a product to really a company and a multi-product company. And so we made the decision to go public and we did that in July of 2014 and we scaled from there. So over the course of our time as a private company, we had had offers on the company and we just decided like we had such conviction around the potential and that we still had a lot of work yet to do to realize that, that we just kept playing it forward and kept playing it forward. And now as we speak, it's interesting because 
Medtronic has come and uh, is, you know, in the in the final stages, in my understanding, which is public information of completing the acquisition of mm-hmm. Intersect, which makes good sense, right? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, companies that are successful, you know, smaller companies, you know, are well served in a in an organization like a Medtronic, sure. right? Because they have all the resources, they have the global footprint. You know, Intersect still is very much a U.S. focused mm-hmm. business, which. Is what you do. You build your business close to home, right? Because right? that's right. less expensive. You can do it. You know. Uh, you know. You can. You can drive. I mean, I remember driving from here to Fresno. I mean, wherever I could, right? Because that's more, you know, as efficient as possible. But to be able to take advantage of the resources right. and a footprint of a large company like a Medtronic or an Abbott or Boston Scientific is, you know, will just you know take that you know organization to the next level. So you know, in your experience, sort of in that CEO role at, at ENT, you know, and I know that you uh, you also serve on a, a number of boards. You know, the the role of a of, of a board member, both sort of from your perspective on the operational side, but then in your sort of your experience as one, you know, what do you see as sort of the the way that board members can be most effective, or you know, and that could be from your own personal experience, you know, on the sort of on the operational side, dealing with a, a board or as a board member yourself. Yeah, and I've been fortunate because I've sat on nonprofit boards, I've sat on private company boards, public boards, um, but there are some sort of common themes there in terms, of, like first and foremost, like the board's responsibility is to ensure the organization has the right leader, right? right? So that's at the you know the end of the day, you know the most important thing. Um, so once again, it comes down to people, right? And making sure you have the right leader, not just for today, but where you ultimately want the organization to go. And then secondly, I think it's, you know, making sure that the organization is really staying true to its mission and purpose. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, companies can lose their way. And I think the board is really, you know, in addition to the financial and fiscal responsibility, fiduciary responsibility, there's, there's as well as making sure you're sort of making, you know, the decisions that are in best interest, not just of today, but in the, in the future. So I think, you know, those kinds of skills and experiences are are just you know fantastic to be able to have and I definitely encourage folks if you, you know as you build your career is thinking about how can you get that experience it's just you learn a ton like you learn a ton about how different leaders make decisions mm-hmm. you learn from your fellow board members you learn from all the mistakes you learn from the successes and it's just you know I've been able to pull a lot of that in terms of my own leadership as well like what not to do right and yeah. that's almost as important as oh, what to do. Absolutely, right? yeah. Like, yeah. okay, in a difficult situation, what you know, what what can I have done differently? It's you know, as a board member, you're you're not running the company, but at the end of the day, hopefully, you're a big value add to the to the leadership team in the organization. Right. It's a useful like mental model, right? Where it's sort of like you think about it invertedly, like okay, so just what are my guardrails? Like what pitfalls can I avoid? And then that's going to in turn sort of keep us on some sort of path forward. Exactly. It's sort of like we all gather sort of learnings in our in our lives and in our careers, and it's those experiences that ultimately help inform how you approach problems in the future. Right. You know, there's obviously sort of the the governance component to it, but. Yep. You know, maintaining sort of that initial cultural component is really, I think, critical because you know, oftentimes these smaller companies, as they scale, you know, they're they're mission oriented, right? That like they, they, there's to your point, there's a sort of a camaraderie, there's a mission, there's this notion that you're solving big problems, and so as you grow and scale, like keeping that flame alive, if you will, I think 
yeah, that's an interesting sort of perspective as somebody on the board making sure that you know the ship is steering its course. Yeah, and because it's hard when you're scaling really quickly, it's hard to continue to focus on what really matters, and you can oftentimes focus on the urgent, not the important. Right. You know, I want to talk a little bit about your your, your time at Abbott. I was watching a you know a lecture you gave um, at Stanford, the the Fogarty lecture, mm-hmm. and you know you mentioned. A framework which I thought was really interesting. It was expanding the reach of the practical. I was wondering if you could kind of walk me through that. Yeah, you know, I think we are so blessed in our industry to do the work that we do in terms of driving innovation. I mean, innovation is core to what we what we do in medtech. Oftentimes, what I've seen over the years is you get kind of caught up in the bells and the whistles and what could happen versus what what's really gonna have the biggest impact. And so as we've thought about it, and I've been thinking about how to leave the biggest sort of impact in this world, it's really sort of driving access, driving affordability. Mm -hmm. So I would like to think like, what good is innovation if people don't have access to it? So we oftentimes are like, the art of the possible. Like, wow, this is so great. I'm like, yeah, but can that scale from you know the the top you know one percent of physicians doing a procedure to really having a global impact on you know billions of people around the world right and and oftentimes the answer is no right like and so you don't want people stopping their dreams around the the art of the possible but ultimately it's the it's it's the practical like in terms of okay what could actually make a difference and whether that be improving outcomes whether that be lowering costs whether it be lowering the barriers to adoption so it could really have the biggest impact around the world and i think that's something um, as i've thought about my career and as i think about sort of the technologies we're developing within abbott it's something we're spending more and more time focused on so we're you know not just focused on sort of features and benefits but really ultimately impact of the healthcare system right I think that that's really important, and you're seeing that sort of being more aware, or like you know, sort of shifting the focus like up the value chain or down the value chain, where it's you know, you're thinking to your point is about outcomes, and you know, you see like whether it's with risk sharing or coming together with you know providers or with uh, insurers, it's like there's a lot of fertile ground there to be able to really be effective beyond to your point, sort of just the product. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know the product is important, mm-hmm. and and kind of depends as well the maturity of the industry or the maturity of the technology. But I also think you could have breakthrough new to the world technology and still have it being still be accessible to, to millions. I think look, but like our Freestyle Libre product, I don't you know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that? It's outside of cardiovascular, but it's in a disease state that many of our patients have in cardiovascular, which is diabetes. Mm-hmm. And so it's for people who need a continuous glucose monitor to manage their, their diabetes and monitor their glucose levels. And that's a great example where the team developed a technology that really is actually quite simple in its form factor. It's easy to use. Sometimes people call it like, Fisher price friendly, right? Like really right. easy to figure out. But that has like lowered the barrier to adoption. And oh, by the way, it's affordable. In right. fact, it's the same price globally. Um, and that was really a distinct strategy. Um, it's still breakthrough technology. We're continuing to innovate on it. So mm-hmm. you can have breakthrough innovation that also drives access and affordability. Right. I think sometimes we think those are, there's a juxtaposition sure. between those two, but it actually can very well happen. Um, you know, simultaneously. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point. In your role at Abbott, you know, as, as EVP, 
map the trajectory of your career. You know, you started off in Guidant, Boston Scientific, that organization grew, you sort of progressed your career, went to the startup, really scaled that, found success, had an exit, and then now in your role at Abbott, how does you know, maybe the lessons you learned building a company inform maybe now being at Abbott, a large company, a lot of responsibility? You know, are there things or lessons that you've now are sort of deploying in this new role? Yeah, you know, it's, it's been a bit of a transition going back into a big company, right? So I had been running a division at Boston Scientific and then they made the move to the, you know, as we talked before, a very small startup that scaled, uh, but still paled in comparison in size and complexity to what I run today. So I lead medical devices for, for Abbott, which includes all of our cardiovascular products, our diabetes care products, as well as our products for neuromodulation for mm -hmm chronic pain and movement disorder. So completely different scale and complexity. But some of the leadership you know, skills are still the same in terms of really focusing on finding the right people for the roles and making sure we're really aligned on sort of our goals and being really clear on what the expectations are. So I think there's some of those sort of tenets that still ring true and just really the importance of the team and the importance of the people. Yeah. And whether it be, you know, the couple hundred people I had at Intersect or the, gosh, I probably have 35,000 people now that work with me at Abbott. Um, but still, at the end of the day, it comes down to great people doing meaningful things. Yeah, I think that that's a reoccurring theme that I hear, right? That it really is about the people. And so just to sort of drill down on that a little bit, as you are in an organization that is growing, to your point, you're interviewing every single person, right? Obviously that is not something that is feasible at yeah, this. Yeah, do not do that right? now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, do you think, like, are there things that you've sort of, you know, maybe created processes around that still capture, to your point, the ability to really find great talent you know just you know thinking it could even be like something around culture or like what what are the drivers for you when you're looking at like well what does constitute a really good team yeah I mean there are so many talented people in this world who could do a variety of jobs but what I really am looking for and I think we look for at Abbott are people who really want to make an impact mm -hmm. because there are a lot of different things you can do we're blessed to be to be able to help people every day in healthcare, and I think you want people who are really drawn to that and who are really, really committed because work is, you know, it's hard, right? Like it's time consuming. You spend a lot of hours in the day doing your work regardless of what you do. And so we want people who really, you know, enjoy it and who really thrive on the challenges, but, you know, ultimately take pride in the impact that we make. So for me, that's probably the most important thing when I think about talent. You know, I have seven different businesses. I think about, you know, the leaders to put in those businesses. Like there's a lot of people who can run businesses, but are there people who really are going to have that same kind of focus on the customer, or the focus on really, you know, improving outcomes, lowering costs, once again, keeping it simple, but like giving, giving people the opportunity to live their best lives. Right. And that's really what we do. You know, it's a it's a it's a noble noble cause. It's not just quote unquote running a business. Right. That's really important, and like it's something that again, thinking about sort of theme themes that I, I've seen just in the conversations I've had is like, you know, back to that sort of like mission driven um, culture. Is I think healthcare is particularly sort of it draws that kind of person. There's a clear sort of patient centric mission to the the work. You have sort of like this 
dichotomy between like, you know, missionary versus like maybe mercenary. And I've seen over and over again that really the people who are successful are the ones who are mission-oriented, right? Yeah, um, and that's where like over the long run, the people who are the most successful are the ones who are really focused on, on the impact. Right. And who are really doing the work with purpose, not just for the money, right? right. Like you can make good money a lot of, doing a lot of different things in this world. That, you know, that's, that's not the motivator, if you will, necessarily, right. for people who are attracted to MedTech. Yeah. Really quickly, I, I wanted to touch on, so you, know, you, you have the sort of the product portfolio that you're responsible for. We were talking a little bit about innovation earlier. How do you think about innovation and in, could be whether you're know, thinking about sort of organic R&D versus sort of like strategic acquisition? Does that look different depending on what that product is or, or is there sort of an overall strategy that you're, you, you, you sort of think about that informs, you know, sort of how that works operationally? Yeah, I mean, we tend as Abbott to lean more towards organic R&D and part of which is we're not going to be successful unless we really understand our customer. Mm-hmm. So it gets back to what right. I talked before, right? Like that's the most important thing. Like that's why we're here. If we're here for the patients, we're here for in particular the physician customers. And so we we have a deep understanding of what their needs are, right? And so at the end of the day, we should be well positioned to do things organically, right? To bring breakthrough innovation forward. It's not to say that, you know, acquisitions aren't part of the overall a mix of innovation, mm-hmm. but we definitely are, you know, are blessed to have what I consider probably one of the most broadest and deepest portfolio, in particular in cardiovascular. So we're just in a really strong position, um, yeah. and it's fun to see how productive we're being with our pipeline. So we're in the midst of a number of new product launches. So it's really a fun yeah. time to be part of Abbott. To that end, what couple of product launches are exciting you the most? You know, anytime you can do things sort of less invasively and, and reduce risk, like I think about like Amulet, which is a left atrial mm-hmm. appendage occlusion. So it's great to bring that option to to the table to, you know, help patients, you know, avoid the, the risk of stroke. Probably what's most exciting for me, though, is, and this is what I consider a silver lining of the pandemic, is just the, you know, the rise in the utilization of telehealth and digital tools. And as I think about connected care and really meeting the patient where he or she is, mm-hmm. it's been so fantastic to see sort of how quickly after decades of we're thinking about following patients remotely, how that's you know really come, become to be a almost an expectation, right. if you will. Right. And standard so, of care. Yeah, yeah. which is fant- you know it's a great opportunity for us, right? It's like empowering the the patient with the information they need when they need it. Learning from one patient to benefit millions mm-hmm. is exactly where we need to be headed. So I'm excited about that potential. And as I think about democratizing healthcare, right, to be able to like reach the masses like I do think digitization is going to be a big part of that so you're starting to see more of that in our portfolio and it's great to see it being embraced in a way that I'm not sure if the pandemic hadn't happened and hit so right. hard, it like I think that was ten it years was a, of it. Of it really did, yeah, it yeah. absolutely did accelerate that work. So it was all work that we were going to be doing and had on our pipeline. But I think the adoption of it really accelerated, and it has has really sharpened our focus, in particular, on sort of the role that connected care will play in the future. Right. You have these exogenous like events that occur that can sort of impact or direct the trajectory of development or just you know pull forward innovation in a way that like years of things happen in a very short period of time so in terms of like how that relates to 
other markets or developing markets, you yeah. know, that like there's so much opportunity to to practically deliver care in a way that, you know, has never That's been. That's like the decentralization of healthcare with things right. like remote proctoring of cases or remote management. I mean, we last year launched the first sort of virtual clinic for patients with chronic pain and movement disorders mm-hmm. where we can not just monitor patients remotely, but we're actually reprogramming their devices. So we're changing their therapy and right. they could be 200 miles away, they could be 3,000 miles away. We would never have fathomed that that would be possible in, in 2022, right. and it is now. Yeah. And I think that's a real positive, right, to your point of, like, we're not all going to be experts. You know, there's only so many physician specialists who are really expert at what they do. But to the extent that we could leverage these technologies, right. and, and maybe I could have someone here at UCSF proctoring a case in India, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really does, to your point, it sort of decentralizes and democratizes access to quality care. So. Yeah, and that's just, that's just good for the globe, if right. you will. Yeah. You know, one of the questions I like to ask is, you know, if there's a book that like you're currently reading or if there's a book that you've read that has sort of had a profound effect, it could be sort of personally or professionally, something that you found was particularly impactful on you. It's funny, like, what am I reading right now? I'm reading... Uh, uh, you know, heart rhythm, society abstracts, right. <laughs> and a lot of details around pulse field ablation yeah. and uh, physiologic pacing, you know, right. those types <laughs> of things. So, just to think about like what one book, you know, there's a lot of them. It's funny, I was just doing some uh, spring cleaning the other day and I found a, a book that I just love to read. It's a Dr. Seuss, it's like all oh, the places you'll go. And I just think of what a great sentiment, yeah. right? To give people that hope of their potential and in the future and I you know it's it's funny because I set it on my son's bed and he's like what's and he's you know 15 year old teenage boy doesn't right. want really much to do with me at all and <laughs> certainly doesn't want like a teaching moment if you will and so I'll probably have to put it back on his bed when he graduates from high school maybe I'll wrap it wrap it for him but it's a very, very hopeful and I actually think nowadays a little hope can go a long way yeah it it, it definitely is one of those one of those books that you look at it with with a different perspective at different stages in your life. Exactly. You know? so yeah, I hadn't read it forever, and yeah. I'm sure we had gotten it for him when he was just a little kid, and it, yeah. you know, somehow never made it into the, you know, to the storage. That's box. great. It ended up under my bed, and there we go. Right. <laughs> you know, um, way too much about my spring cleaning. Things, you know? So finally, I would love to get a sense from you as somebody who is unique perspective on on the space and on you know, the different roles within it, clinical, sales, marketing, large company, small company, growing a team, managing a large, you know, organization. What might be some advice that you would give somebody who is looking to enter the space or looking to maybe develop their career within it or, or, you know, make a move from a big to a small company or move from field to in-house? You know, what are some things that, like, looking back on you would have loved to have known? Yeah, I mean, I think really being open-minded about opportunities, because when you explained it that way, I'm like, yeah, I have done a lot of different things, right? (laughs) Being open-minded, and I would say being confident. I have to say, I'll tell you a story. I remember distinctly, I was a regional sales manager for Cardiac Rhythm Management, and I was really enjoying my role there, and I'm trying to think I had St. Louis and Iowa and a good part of the rest of Missouri and a little bit of Southern Illinois and it was a it was a good gig all around and I remember getting a call and it was hey Lisa we want to offer you a role it's to be the national sales you know leader for cardiac surgery and at the time I literally said out loud which note to self should have been just a thought bubble but I said out loud I'm like 
really, you think I'm ready for that? And I realized at the time, I was so fortunate to have the individual say, Lisa, like it was a lesson for me. He's like, Lisa, I wouldn't be calling you if we didn't think you were ready for this. And I was like, why did I even question? You know, but like every step of the way, making the move from a big company and startup, like that was scary. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, well, I don't know how to do this. But I was open-minded. And I, I, I took some risks. I asked a lot of questions. I recognized I don't know everything. And I never will know everything. And so the important part is just surrounding yourself with, with great people and not, not being afraid to ask questions and to, and to be vulnerable. And I've, and I've kind of done that. I mean, I did that as well, moving back into a, a very big job at Abbott. You know, wouldn't, you know, probably my former self wouldn't, wouldn't have done that. I probably would have said I wasn't quite quite ready for it yeah. um, and as it turns out it was a great move I mean it stretched me in a lot of different ways and it continues to every day you throw a global pandemic in there it makes life a little bit more challenging too, right. especially in a new job but <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't have done it any differently yeah that's great kind of ties back to your notion of operating with not a complete information set right yeah. and so you're you're constantly it, having it's to, constantly uncomfortable right, right? Yeah. and like being comfortable, being comfortable, uncomfortable. With the uncomfortable yeah. like and just kind of embracing it and like it's okay but it's really hard especially as an engineer where like i thrive i mean i love math like i love getting to an answer right and it was the right answer right like that's the beauty about rent read a math there's mm-hmm. like one answer and you just realize in life and in business there's not one way to do things and and being okay with that yeah that's great. Well, Lisa, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, Thank you no, so it was much. great. This really was fun. Great. Thank you for yeah, having me. Absolutely. All righty. If you enjoy hearing conversations like this one, please subscribe to the Med Device Careers podcast, leave a review, and recommend to a friend to help spread the word. Are you searching for a new career, looking to hire the next Med Device star, want to grow your network, or are simply looking for a reliable source of Med Device news and insights? MedDevice Careers is creating a platform for professional development and opportunity, cultivating growth through engaging content and conversations, and connecting MedDevice professionals across the globe. Go to meddevicecareers.com and create a profile today. You can also follow MedDevice Careers on all social platforms, and I can also be found on Twitter at PasteBeat or on LinkedIn, where I'll share what I'm reading and learning as I continue to grow my own career. Thanks again.